You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Well, here we are, back inside the Musicians Guild for Season 2. I'm your host, Steve Choi, and as always, I thank you for being here, and I thank you for listening. It's good to be back after taking a while off. I needed to kind of reassess what I was doing rather than falling into an immediate pattern that is based upon kind and positive feedback I get from people. Um, It's new for me to be able to have something develop while releasing it publicly. It's like releasing all the demos to my earliest band. But I know that people will be hearing these demos. So I'm actually like, you know, working on the demos and fixing them up and trying to revise things and make it the best that I can. But when I'm uploading them, uh, like these podcast episodes, it's still the feeling of a demo where I'm like, shit, people are going to hear this. People shouldn't be hearing this. This isn't even the most refined version of this idea. But at the same time, that control which I seek, which I have always sought, uh, I've realized is the death of a lot of vital creativity in me. And as I've mentioned in numerous ways at various times, breaking down uh, those, I don't know how else to say it, other than like creative institutions that my mind has created. Uh, You know, when you go on with these things that you never question, the only way to really progress and evolve is to start to analyze and question these things, these tenets of our processes. So yeah. Thanks for sticking around and continuing to be a part of this forum. A psychological mixed martial arts match between my stream of consciousness and my fragile ego, afraid of what people will think, afraid of me saying the wrong thing. Uh, It's a never-ending battle with unlimited rounds. So, pop music. Popular music. Some people think... They are one and the same. Some people think that now pop music is its own subsect underneath the umbrella of popular music. I call it splitting hairs. I do not wish to spend any of my time or effort wondering about the semantics of terms created by the music industry. What I do know is that I am glad that pop music exists. I think it's important to humanity. And I think it's important to the quality of life on earth in general, and especially right now. As an outlier, I spend so much of my youth 
actively hating and kind of living and creating in spite of pop music. Obviously, as a young, zealous, selfish-minded kid who wanted to make his own way, I wasn't thinking on a large humanitarian level. I wasn't thinking about the benefits that you know, massive amounts of people get from music that is appealing in a very easy and uh, expansive way. So while me and my band of brothers put all of our efforts into creating what we thought was the most anti-pop music you could create, um, slowly over time, I realized that if anything, we utilized pop music more than any other genre. We were just repackaging it and creating combinations that we felt were unique that highlighted the power of these aspects of pop music in a new and original way. We still needed a catchy rhythm. We still needed really catchy melodies and hooks. Um, we just had a different view. See, if I was speaking to my 23-year-old self, my 23-year-old self would be saying, you know, fuck mainstream pop music. All they're doing is homogenizing a sound. The industry jumps on whatever's popular, signs a bunch of artists that sound like that, shove that down people's throats to make as much money as possible. And as soon as that trend is done, on to the next thing where the process repeats. I think that's the death of the quality of music. And I think that is, you know, ruining the environment of music for all the rest of us who really want to apply ourselves to the craft and make something serious and meaningful. To which I would say, okay, 23-year-old self, I totally see your point, And I understand why you feel that way. You know, um, you have never fit into basic systems just because of the way you look and where you live. You've never felt accepted by these things that are actually meant for these large populations. So by default, you already have this, I guess, instinct to kind of reject that. But let me ask you this question, 23-year-old self. You got a bunch of people out there in the world. And there's way more people not like you than like you as far as musical interests go. So many of these people, they didn't have an older sister who listened to goth industrial and punk in the late 80s and early 90s where you could kind of be shown a brand new reality of music. They didn't have these cool people that they went to high school with that were older than them that got them into the best punk and indie records in the early to mid 90s. Now, that said, all these people who didn't get to have this view into these weird and awesome subcultures of punk and indie and hip hop and whatever else that you were into, they still have to live life. They have problems just like you, me, like everyone else. And a lot of these people have lives that none of us would ever want. Struggles and difficulties and just daily suffering. Now, do you want those people to be able to be in the car, turn on the radio, put their music on, 
put their headphones in. And do you want them to have relief? Do you want them to have something that makes them feel good that they can connect with, that they can go to a bar or a festival or a sports game and sing with other people? Something that genuinely makes them happier or not? Or do you want a bunch of pissed off people, angry, you know, going about their daily lives with one less thing to try and help that anxiety to make them happier, to make us all a little bit less of an asshole? I'm pretty sure that my 23-year-old self would understand that. It just took me a lot of time to get out of my selfish and self-centered way of looking at everything. I think a lot of us can relate to that. So yeah, me and pop music are cool. Um, I was checking out that series on Netflix called This Is Pop. Um, I was watching that episode about auto-tune. And I'm sure a lot of you saw on the internet that story that T-Pain was telling. Uh, that episode opens up with T-Pain telling this story about how him and Usher were on this flight to the BET Awards and... Uh, Usher called him back to his seat to talk to him and essentially what happened was that like they were friends and they started making small talk and then all of a sudden Usher kind of blindsided T-Pain very calmly with this like a you know that you fucked up music for reals right for like all of us and T-Pain talks about how you know, it really hurt him and that it led to like a serious four-year depression. And, you know, 23-year-old me hated T-Pain because for those same reasons I didn't understand and like Usher, I felt like he was just fucking music up, you know. Um, but now, from where I stand, I could not disagree with Usher more. Uh, I still am not a fan of T-Pain's music, but I am a fan of his bravery and to whatever degree you can call it innovation, his innovation. Say what you want, but he essentially created a new subgenre of music and influenced hip-hop forever. He was a huge part of the state of hip-hop today, as it is now with every rapper needing to be able to sing hooks, and not just hooks as top lines or choruses. A lot of these rappers are using singing as their whole delivery. It's the whole verse is melodic. You know, although it is like nursery rhyme level melodies, very short repeating patterns, uh, that's the construct that creates the power of that particular style. And all of this was made possible through the technology that was created by someone else who wasn't a musician. Um, in that same episode of This Is Pop, they talk about the inception of Auto-Tune and how it essentially came from an engineer who worked with uh, seismic graphs and audio uh, used by oil companies for seeking oil, you know, basically like shitty industry. It is somewhat poetic to have a non-musician whose skills are utilized by one of the most corrupt and damaging industries on earth, create a technology that changes one of the most powerful and important forms of art as we know it forever. 
So it makes me think about technology and music. I utilize technology and music. I'm sitting in front of my computer with my audio digital interface and all these other uh, components of modern technology that make recording, making music, and audio better. And I love it. But I always ask the question, how much is too much? Is there a point and or have I reached that point where my utilization and dependence on technology is actually inhibiting my creative power? Music has always been based on technological innovation, even if early on it looked more like mechanical innovation than technological innovation. I believe that conceptually it's always been about the technology to generate, capture, and replicate sounds that we hear naturally. And now that's come so far that we're doing that with sounds that are generated artificially and keeping them in these closed loop systems of, I, I mean, it's just virtual reality. So what I'm meaning to say is that I'm now thinking that perhaps I'm looking at this whole MIDI world of music, you know, VSTs, DAWs, and essentially the genesis of digital music. Maybe I'm looking at this the same way Fools looked at a harpsichord when it was first created in the late 1400s. Or maybe how, you know, guitarists looked at the first electric guitar created by Les Paul. So I don't know, for musicians like me, maybe the question shouldn't be how much of this technology is okay? Is this technology, you know, inhibiting my creativity that's rooted in this world of real instruments being played by people? Uh, maybe the question I should be asking is, how do I want to curate these two different worlds? Because I exist between and within both of them. I think we all need to find our balance because I'm not out on the street with an acoustic guitar singing into the wind and I'm not an EDM producer. I'm somewhere in this weird nebulous middle. But what I do know is that that connection, that need that people have for somebody pounding on the drums, ripping their arm through a set of strings on a guitar, that sort of uh, ambient energy that's created around people really playing instruments. It may have a lull in popularity right now from certain people's perspectives with the absolute rise of hip hop and EDM. Uh, I don't think it'll ever go away. And I think that, you know, over multiple times, it will have its day again. I think everything moves through phases and cycles. I just know that the power of the particular combination of drums, bass, guitar, vocals has been so popular for so long because it's special. It's a special thing that hits a certain type of energy and still has a really wide emotional range within that type of music. Uh, enough so that for people who like rock-based music, oftentimes it's all they need. 
but you know, I feel like most of the people I know who are fully, fully realized have a wide spectrum of music they enjoy because when you feel all the emotions and you experience life and you're trying to have the widest view you can, you also need a range of music that represents, resonates, and fortifies your experience. So, you know, if one type of genre right now is your thing, it's all you're into, that's cool. I'm not saying that you're less of a person. I'm just saying that I think there's a good chance that it won't stay that way. And if it does, it's because there is a psychological and emotional reason for you to. Is that a big duh? I don't know. Shit, it's a podcast. I'm just talking, you know? And on that note, that's enough of my babbling. Really babbled today. Uh, today's guest is a very talented guitarist by the name of Rod Castro. Rod plays guitar for Beyonce, BB Rixa, Natasha Bedingfield, Bootsy Collins, among many other artists you probably have heard of. He's a very cool, mellow, humble dude. Perfect type of person to discuss music, gear, and whatever else with. Um, I sincerely enjoyed this chat a lot. We get into normal stuff like gear rundown and, and how Rod is super neat and organized with his gear, but super messy in his real life. Uh, we discuss our approach to playing guitar through geometric patterns. We also kind of get into some different stuff like his time playing in a band with actor Tom Sizemore, some of the crazy stories that comes along with that. Uh, we also talk about him being a father, you know, him doing his thing, and uh, he's just a really great, important musician that I'm glad we all get to get into the mind of for just a little bit. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rod Castro. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule to do this. Man, I'm stoked to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah. And congratulations on, was it your first kid? It's actually, my, it's actually my second. So I have a 14-year-old oh. and now a six-month-old, which is quite a gap. Awesome. Yeah. That'll be some serious uh, sibling protection, that 14-year <laughs> difference. Yeah, for sure. That's cool, man. Um, so... Unlike a lot of other guests, we're not too familiar with each other. Um, we kind of met through Instagram. I started kind of getting hip to your work, and turns out we have some mutual friends. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of the same people. Just the other day, you were doing a jam session, was it, yeah. with Matt Rubano? Yeah. Um, what was the deal with that jam session? So a uh, buddy of mine named Joshua Ray Gooch runs this, uh, I think it's like every Tuesday here in North Hollywood. And... Um, He's an incredible guitar player. He's Shania Twain's guitar. So he's like, he's got classic rock and country chops for days. And so Matt Rubano and I have been really close friends um, basically since he moved to LA, which was shortly before the pandemic started. And uh, Josh had asked me to do this jam with him. He kind of does it every week and he kind of mix matches a bunch of musician friends of his that he thinks 
would do well together a lot of times they're meeting each other for the first time on stage and just jamming and like you know what better way to get to know someone than to play with them and it's all completely improv no nothing planned or rehearsed and so he's like hey man do you know this guy named matt rubano i think you guys would do really well together and i'm like dude he's like one of my best friends so it's just (laughs) super funny that he thought that we would mesh well and didn't know that we had been tight friends for a while but yeah it was a lot of fun it was really really fun that's like the first time i've done this anything like that since the pandemic happened so it was very needed well sounds like this person has a great sense of who matches if he's already picking people that are close friends right? yeah especially without even knowing that's what made it so funny yeah and so at this jam session do you guys kind of take turns starting a jam does he usually start it or lead it How, what's the ebb and flow usually of this session um, it kind of varies. He'll start something. He'll look at something and be like, hey, you start something. Give me something that feels like this. So he's a really good leader without like being bossy. And then, you know, he'll like start a riff or something and then he'll call changes and we all just follow along and he'll do like a line and be like, harmonize this with me. So it'll all be super on the spot, like flying by the seat of our pants. And uh, it worked out really well. He usually has a keyboard player, but he had me on it because I do a lot of like ambient really textural trippy stuff that can kind of pass for keys at times so it was like a cool a cool way of two guitarists complementing each other who were like complete opposite spectrums of how they play guitar that's really cool and uh how long does this jam session usually go for we do about two sets and i think they're about 45 minutes each but they're very loose like we can kind of just keep going and do whatever we want they give him a lot of like sort of freedom to do whatever he wants there which is pretty cool Cool. So this last one you guys did, the instrumentation, was it two guitars, bass, and drums? Yeah. Okay, cool. So it was like an instrumental jam yeah. mainly. Cool. Um, so you are what many would call, what I like to call, like the mercenary style musician, <laughs> right? So you're doing studio, you're studio player, you're also doing live gigs, joining mm-hmm. bands for artists and stuff like that. Um, I'm assuming you would have more than one pedal board set up, right? For different situations you're, or are you the type of person that sticks with one pedal board set up and varies it slightly depending on what you need for each specific gig? I, I have one pedal board and I have worked forever on having that one board be sort of my Swiss army knife that gets me everything that I could possibly right. imagine. And then I keep like a small bag on me with like extra pedals. So one of my best friends has a company called Cute Rigs and he like builds pedal boards for session players and stuff like that. And so he built me this crazy board where I kind of just gave him every pedal I wanted on there and he customized it, built like two tiers and it looks super clean. And he also has like um, extended output jacks on the side if I want to like kind of add something off the board and still have it in the chain. And he can also create like little boxes if I want that pedal to be in between somewhere in the chain. So I really have infinite flexibility with what I'm able to do with that. Thanks to him. So that's like my main touring and session board. That's cool. Um, And is it the type of pedal board builder where you essentially give him a rough design, give him all the pedals and then everything else is built by him? Yeah. Yeah, I I I, okay. I didn't even have an idea of what I wanted. Um, he kind of was just like, "Hey, Christmas is coming up. I want to do like something nice for you." And I was like, "Sure." He's like, "I'm about to start this pedal board company. I want you to be like my guinea pig that I can show off 
once the business launches. And so I was like, cool. I wasn't expecting anything. I'd always have like issues with like not having enough space and, you know, restricted to whatever board I had. And I didn't want to spend thousands of dollars for like the pedal builders that I know who are going to build me a board when I'm going to start swapping things and ruin all the work that they do, you know? Yeah. So it was a total surprise and definitely has been working for him because the second he made my board, like all my friends have been hitting him up like, yo, can you give me something like that? Can you give me something like this? So it worked out perfectly for him where he's kind of getting a lot of buzz with other musicians in L.A. and able to really make these amazing custom boards for guitarists. Words to that. I mean. I'm thinking about hitting him up too, <laughs> building a little second. If you've second seen, if me. if you've seen the board I use on on Instagram stuff, that's all him. The dude's the dude's genius. It's great. That's rad. Um, so, I mean, I can go deep, deep, deep. But for the sake of trying to keep some flow into the conversation, I'll try not to go too deep. But can you give us the basic, I guess, rundown of your pedal board? Are they? stuck on in a velcro system still or does he use a different way of mounting the pedals to the board um i use dual lock so it's like the really intense plastic on plastic velcro locking um and he's you know does all the custom cabling and everything and the custom signal chain and everything so i like things looking a certain way and he's able to just route everything the way i need it what kind of power supply do you have on it? Is it like a voodoo labs box i'm using the strymon so strymon makes these really cool ones the ohio and the zuma and I'm like a big Strymon buff. I'm like, I have a great relationship and work with them a lot. So I, I use all their stuff as much as possible. That's rad. Um, is it sort of pedal to pedal or do you have any sort of true bypass system built in or anything like that? Um, I have buffers in there. I'm also using um, like a MIDI switcher from a company called Disaster Area. And that's controlling, switching between all my drives. I don't like to stack anything. So it switches between my three main gain stages and it also controls the tempos on like the Strymon timeline and the Strymon Mobius. So I'm able to like... Is it... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, the cool thing about it is I'm able to like kind of make presets for like certain artists that I play with where I'm like having to jump from one sound to another sound that has multiple effects. So I don't have to tap dance. So it kind of controls everything I need to. Yeah. Is the reason you don't like to stack gains just for purity of signal flow? Yeah. And path, like I, tone? I like... I love the pedals I use and I love how they sound by themselves. So I like hearing that pure, like that pedal by itself is perfect. This pedal by itself is perfect. So I kind of have them all tweaked to where I have like my low, medium and high gain settings. And I just love the way they sound by themselves. I dig that. I think, I think similarly. So what it tells me is that you're probably in general, a very neat organized person in most aspects of your life. Really Am not. I, <laughs> I'm, no? I'm, I'm only like that with my gear and my music. Everything else is a total mess. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, I was going to, that would have been my next guess, which is it's either that or you kind of mainly exercise that side of you through your gear yes. and your guitar playing and stuff like that. I'm very OCD with my gear and everything. Everything's neatly packed and I always pack everything nice and everything. So like that part of me, if you were to look on that, you'd be like, wow, that guy really has his stuff together. But it's really only in music where I, <laughs> where I, I, I live the way I would like to live in my everyday life. Um, if there were, <clears throat> excluding the tuner, <clears throat> if there were three pedals that you could only take from your current setup, that were the only pedals you could play with for the rest of your life, which pedals would those be? So one of them would be this new one I just got. It's called a uh, Nordland. I think it's called an 
OSD. It's like some kind of ODR or something, ODRC. It's a, I just got it a few weeks ago, and to me, it's like the perfect drive pedal that's super flexible. So that's one that I would take with me. Um, another would be probably my Strymon Timeline and I think a volume pedal. So between those three, I'm good. Legit. That's super legit. Um, so do you have a main guitar that you use most of your gigs with, or do you have a set of a certain amount of guitars that you use for the variety of, of tones you need? I have a certain set of guitars. Um, some of my favorites are a company called Novo out of Nashville. They make these really mm -hmm. beautiful boutique guitars. I have two of those, which are kind of two of my main guitars. Um, I also use PRS, Gretsch, and Gibson. So I kind of switch between those four brands. And your Novos, what are the body styles on those? Uh, one of them is like a semi-hollow made out of pine, and the other one's like a solid body ash. And they both kind of have these really asymmetrical, almost Rickenbacker looks to them. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Do they have the that sort of Rickenbacker tone where it has the body of the hollow body, but still has this sort of attack and sparkle. They don't only because they both have the same exact pickups in it. I use Lawler pickups. So I have, I, okay, use, gotcha. I use their Imperials. And okay. what I love about those pickups is they're so transparent. Like you can put them on three different guitars and each guitar is going to sound completely different because you're going to hear the wood and all the characteristics of that guitar. So right. because I have those in almost every guitar I own, they all sound they're all within the same sonic spectrum, but they all have their own characteristics, which I love. Cool. Cool. Um, and then picks. What kind of picks do you use or do they vary? Um, I use Dunlop. So I have they make me my own custom picks and I like their, I think they're called like the XXL Jumbo. So they're like kind of sharp and they're a tiny bit smaller than your average size, but they have the pointy ends. And I just love the precision that I get with those. Yeah, I love the sharps too. Yeah. Um, f for a lot of times for RX sets or Sound of Animals fighting sets, I use the purple jazz sharp. Yeah, it, um, it ma that makes sense because you have such, like a lot of your triplets are super tight and like yeah. precise and that those picks are like perfect for that kind of stuff. We just need it also because we don't really play high gain tones. We kind of use our gain by how much we're digging in, the yeah. volume we're pushing through the amp. So um with that, you know, me not being like the cleanest guitar player, I need all the help I can get with the picks and stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I definitely, a lot of my, because a lot of people will tell me like, man, like, you know, your triplets and your stuff are so clean. And I was like, I, I, my response is always like, look, I grew up playing a lot of punk and a lot of metal. And I actually got a lot of my my picking patterns from you from listening to those records. Like I'd always like you were like one of the first guitarists that introduced me to like those picking between like those one, five, nine, adding that nine going up from like the eighth to the nine, like those kind of things. And I implement so much of that into my playing now. Thanks, man. That's an honor. Um, yeah, as you know, uh, I think you gravitate towards these sort of nines and stuff the same reason we do, which is. Uh, especially on the guitar, I feel like it has a different element than other instruments in how things split up physically and psychologically. For example, like when I'm playing the cello or keyboard, there's not as much separation, but on the guitar, for some reason, I'm able to kind of shift my thinking. I can think in terms of theory 
and go, you know, one, five, eight's the power chord, you move the pinky, it's the nine, and I can kind of think like that. But there's this also duality where I can shift and I approach the guitar as kind of like someone who doesn't know music theory. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, you're, you're associating the sound of chords and movements purely in geometric shapes. Yeah. And uh, I feel like a nine chord, especially in the classic rock way, which is you're playing a power chord, one, five, eight, and then you just move the pinky up to nine is something that is pleasing both sonically and also kind of visually to like the pattern uh, centric mind. Cause I know a lot of guitar players that play like that too. They're mm-hmm. looking in shapes and patterns, not really understanding intervals and stuff like that. So um, I love the nines. We love the nines. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same way. I actually don't know any theory. Like I never studied theory. I didn't go to school for music. I'm like 100% self-taught. And the little theory that I do know, I've just kind of figured it out on my own as I was going. You know, like I remember first going into like a lot of these R&B sessions and They'd be like, okay, right here, you're going to give me this kind of chord. And I would just have like an app on my phone, like a chord app. And I'd like be like, give me one second. I'd literally look up. I'm like, okay, that's how you play it. It's this shape. It's this shape. So everything to me is very much shapes. And over time, I've tried to learn what the numbers mean and how they're relative to the scale and everything like that. I dig that because truly the ends do justify the means. And it's all about how it sounds, not about how it got there really yeah. you know what i mean a lot of the times yeah um especially in music uh, i can relate to that because um, i've spoken about this before but having so much classical technical training when i was young i really had to make a concerted effort to when i started writing my own music to kind of forget all of that and especially when i was getting on the guitar trying not to interface it with the theory I knew from other instruments, but approaching it like a musical beginner so that I could have a totally fresh perspective and get stoked on things outside of my quantification of music through theory and just be like, I like this shape. It feels good to my hand. I like the way these chords move. It feels good. Sounds good to me. So I really dig that you play like that. And I think that I think it's just important because ultimately like theory can be important for communicating musical ideas, but at the end of the day, like ear training and getting in touch with just manifesting what's in your head is so much more important. And I've seen too much technical training and theory step in the way of that for so many people. Like it's literally like a wall that they can't get past. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think especially when it comes to writing and being a session guitarist, because you know, no one's, I've never walked into a session where someone gave me a chart to read or anything. You know, it's all very instinctual and it's all very creative. Like it's all, you hear the song, cool, give me some really cool parts. Or they kind of like give you a vibe of what they want and then you take that and give them what they want, you know? Totally, man. And I think most of at least the songwriting pop world of the music industry is predicated upon that. Like nobody's sending you know, sheet music ahead of time and stuff. You're just kind of, if you know songwriting sessions, which you obviously do, you're just getting in the studio and literally seeing what you can do. Yeah. And you can spend 12 hours and and we've all spent days doing that where nothing has come of it. Yeah. Or you can kind of hit magic in the first hour and, you know, something great comes of it too, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> For sure, man. So we've kind of, uh, the reason I kind of wanted to outline your basic the basic ins and outs of your physical setup is that 
it's a cool introduction for me and I would think any listener <laughs> as to kind of like your profile as a person through your musical setup, through your playing and through your tendencies and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, now, for my own interest, I would love to know about, you know, I'm going to ask some more like basic bitch questions like, you know, how did you get started? How long have you been playing? What's the deal? <laughs> yeah, um, I started playing guitar when I was 12 years old. So that'd be, um, wow. I was going to say 15 years ago, but that's actually 25 years ago. That's how old I am. Um, mm. So... I started out, you know, just asked my parents for an acoustic, like a guitar, and they got like, you know, back in the days, we'd get catalogs, you know, and like that's how a lot of things were bought. You just be like, okay, I'll order that. And so I got this really like kind of just cheapy acoustic guitar, and I played that thing until it fell apart. And then eventually they got me one that was less cheap. And then eventually they saw that I was really taking it seriously. And I think from the moment I got it, I was just like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like, I got to find a way to make this my career, you know? And at the time, all I played was like punk and ska music. Like that was just, that was my life. That's all I played, you know? So I started my own band when I was like 14 and that's all I played. And in my head, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a, I'm going to be in this band. We're going to get signed. We're going to do warp tour every year. And we're just going to make a living doing that. And that was like, that's where my head was at. Um, never once did I think I would be doing what I'm doing today. Um, when I was 19, I joined a band with an actor named Tom Sizemore. He was like in a bunch of war movies and, uh, oh, yeah. Sims, yeah. Sizemore, bro. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so I was in a band with him. Uh, Whoa. I haven't talked to him in a long time and I was, it, I was living with him at like a pretty dark time in his life. Um, dealing with a lot of Whoa. addiction and stuff like that. But I was like 19 years old living with him, making music. He wanted to be in a band. I was like, cool. I'm not doing anything else. Um, so it's crazy how it all happened. So we were rehearsing one day, um, and we were rehearsing next to another band that I was actually a big fan of. And the guitarist in that band, um, was in a band called Snot. They were like a really cool hardcore band from, um, I think like Santa Barbara area. They were like one of my what, favorite bands. What band was this at the time where they were rehearsing next to you? So they were called A Bloom, and it was like a band that was so close to getting simmer, but they didn't. It was like the drummer for Soulfly and a bunch of the guys, two of the guys from Soulfly and some of the guys from Snot. It was like a, like a super group of like metal bands. Okay. And so I saw the guitar player, his name was Mikey Doling. Um, I saw him in a room and I was just like, oh my God, you're Mikey Doling. So I was like kind of freaking out and having a fanboy moment. Told him that I was in this band with Tom Sizemore. He was, in a, he was a fan of Tom Sizemore. So he came in and talked to us. And he listened to some of our stuff and I had been writing all the music for that band. And so he's like, I would love to like record you guys and get you guys in a real studio and do a record. And so we were all like, hell yeah. So he brought us in to do a record. Um, the drummer at the time, um, who's like one of my best friends now, and that'll tie into another story if we get to it, which is pretty funny. But um, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, it's a pretty toxic environment with, with Tom at the time, you know. But I was like, yeah. cool, I'm just going to do it, whatever. So we did a record with uh, Mikey producing it and he brought in a session drummer and that session drummer was like, you know, dude, like you should be like doing session music. And I was like, I have no idea how to do that or get into that. So he recommended me to like my first gig where like I got paid to like learn songs and play with an artist. And I was just like, whoa, like this is how it is. It's super easy. All I have to do is learn a song. I do this every day of my life. And that kind of snowballed into just 
getting into the LA music scene and getting a bunch of gigs and it led to that. And uh, also at the same time, Tom had a reality show on VH1 and they were using the music that I wrote on the show. So I was dealing with the music supervisor of that show who ended up getting me a gig composing for Hans Zimmer's company, like, you know, seven, eight years later. So that got me into what? like, yeah, <laughs> That's sick. I didn't know that. So that, wow. that got me into that world of writing music for TV shows. This was forever ago, but, um, that got me into the music and sync and live and, and TV world of that. So from mm-hmm. that, basically from being in a band with Tom, that led to, you know, doing film and TV work and also becoming a session player. So it was just super, I never expected anything to come of that. And that turned into where I, I am now, which is crazy. That was a very efficient, brief overview of where, <laughs> how you got from uh, starting playing guitar and then ending up in session work. What, what was the band with Tom Sizemore? What was the music like? It was very, you know, it was called Day 8. And it was very rock and roll. Because at the time, that's what I loved to play. And he was like big into rock. Um, you know, he wasn't the best singer in the world, but he had his, you know, energy and his persona and I had fun writing the stuff and working on it. So, but I don't think anything ever got released or anything. It was like a kind of thing that we played maybe one or two shows and that was it. Did he sing in sort of his gruff Tom Sizemore voice? Very much so. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, cool. And like, was he hitting real melodies or was it rocky and shouty or what was the vocal style? It was kind of more like, imagine like a, like a really gruffy Jim Morrison kind of vibe where none of it was like, it was a lot of it was atonal and like tried to hit a melody. It wasn't in key, but the vibe was there kind of thing. Right. So it's kind of like that partial spoken word vocal style. Yeah. Essentially. Um, and you were still like a young musician. Oh, yeah. Right? You I said a, you were 19, yeah, 20 or something. Yeah, I was a teenager when that was happening. Yeah. And this is in the height of him just partying his ass off. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the classic story of like wide eyed young musician seeing somebody just blasting <laughs> rails and just getting high as fuck the whole time. Exactly. Like which is, I think, yeah. which is exactly why I never got into that when I started like actually doing music and getting into serious situations. I was just like, that was to me was such a, like a, an amazing, like that, that was my dare. You know, that was my, my, my education against drugs was actually seeing that firsthand and be like, yeah, I'm never going to do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's legit, man. Um, sounds like you just, it seems like you've just always had a pretty good head on your shoulders, man. You seem like a really even keeled sort of person, you know? Thanks, man. I think having a kid at a young age definitely had a lot to do with that as well. Um, does your older kid play guitar or any music? He plays keys and like likes to rap and sing. He's very much into the new style of music, like Post Malone, Trap Beats kind of stuff. Okay. And- he makes so does his, he like produce and like make yeah. his own music? And yeah, stuff? I built him his own little studio in his room. He's got like a keyboard. He's got like a whole DAW, whole mic setup and everything. And um, he actually, funny enough, one of his mentors is Katy Perry. She, he's like part of her like young producers group. And she, he's like one of the star pupils of her like young, like young producers that they're trying to showcase and like turn into like full on musicians and stuff. That's rad. It's cool for... uh 
musicians and producers, especially, kind of trying to find their way when they get added to these songwriting or producing groups, you know, yeah. that take them to different places and do stuff. That's legit. Yeah, he's super talented. You know, he's 14, so he does very. He's in his very angsty, um, tortured soul phase right now. But I think if anything, it's only going to create better music for him. Yeah, and much to his dismay, probably having a cool musician father it makes it more frustrating because there's less to like rebel and be <laughs> angsty against. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, for sure. But I also was yeah. never the parent that like pressed it on him. I was just like, hey, if you want to do this, it's here. I'm not going to tell you you have to do it. You know? Yeah, that's super legit. So currently, what are some of the gigs you have going? Meaning... Who and what are you the guitarist for currently? Okay. Um, so I'd say since 2018, I've been working with Beyonce. Um, I mostly do studio stuff for her, but I do play with her live as well. Um, I've done a handful of shows with her. The last one we did was at the beginning of last year. We played Kobe Bryant's Memorial at Staples Center. So that was like super stripped down. It was crazy. <laughs> what's it like playing tiny gigs like that <laughs> you know it it's so weird man um like with her i think that's the only gig i do where i get like nervous before we're about to play you know um especially that one you know it was televised it was completely staple center was packed you know it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a show it was a memorial so like kobe's yeah. family was there not to mention like right like six feet to my right is Michael Jordan and like Magic Johnson. Cause like all of the NBA royalty was there to pay respect for you know, sure. 10 feet in front of me is Stevie wonder and like Kanye and Kim Kardashian. And it's like, and they're all like, it's the most intimate, like it would be like if they were just sitting across from me in my living room, you know, it was that crazy. And I started the whole set. <laughs> so it was me and the piano player starting the whole set by ourselves and there's no click no backing track nothing it's you know that setup was me piano drums and the drums only kind of came in on the big climactic parts and it was like you know i think a six or seven piece string section and a huge choir so and the md uh is a guy named Derek dixie he's conducting the whole thing so it's very much I'm having to watch him conducting and that sort of sets the tempo for me. And he's conducting based off of where she's going vocally. So it's like this huge like train system of like he's here. So then he's going to dictate from her where I go and then where I go dictates where the strings follow. So it's this huge game of like musical telephone, you know, where everyone just has to be on the same page. But honestly, do you feel like that helps or makes it harder? Because obviously, I would imagine most of you, especially you, would have the musical ability to just listen to her where she's going and play along, which is something, a skill we all have to develop in yeah. any sort of ensemble setting. Yeah, I think it's it's that kind of that kind of gig. For me, it's like it's kind of like an airplane. Like, you know, once we take off and we're in the air, we're good. But those first like 30 seconds of the song where I'm just having sure. to like play everything perfectly and it could be the simplest parts, but sometimes the simplest parts under a magnifying glass can be the most difficult to play, you know? So, oh, so often. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, like that kind of gig, like once I got past the first 30 seconds, I'm like, okay, good. I'm good for the rest of the set. And then I didn't even think about it. Then I can have fun. And like, 
being in Beyonce's band, because essentially you're in her band, right? Um, uh, I feel, well, I'm not her touring guitarist. So she has a touring band and that's like gotcha. who she tours with. And I'm more of the studio band for her. But we do like these like one-off events and stuff like that. So we'll do like these sort of special occasion shows with her. How much rehearsal with her is there? Or is it mostly band rehearsal for the performance? She's at and a- then. She's at every rehearsal. She's very, very involved, very hands-on. We'll usually spend like the first half of the day rehearsing, getting everything ready for her to come in, rehearse with us and see if there's any changes she wants to make her stuff. But she's super, super hands-on. That's cool to hear. I would hope that a musician of her caliber would still be super involved, yeah. even as like a superstar, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, she's she's a visionary. She She knows what she wants and... For sure. Gets it. And like none of it is like a power trip. It's all of just like she has this standard of excellence and she it will be met. And it's like such a stress-free and chill environment. Like it's honestly fun. I love doing that gig. I don't think you can be like the top queen for like, we're not just talking a few years. We're talking 22, yeah. <laughs> 21, 22 years now yeah. if you don't have that sort of power like she does you know yeah it's crazy so that's a fun one the other um the other few gigs that i've been juggling for a bit are uh bootsy collins so i do a lot of studio work for him i co-wrote yeah i co-wrote his last record with him um another artist named bb rexa with her it's all live i'm really busy with her and um who else natasha beddingfield as you saw like i was playing with her so I do a lot of live stuff with her. Um, TLC, I've been their guitarist since 2019. And live? Yeah. Live. Also? Yeah, live. And um, another artist I work with a lot, just kind of on and off, is Ellie Goulding. She's an amazing like British singer. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, so those are the kind of artists that, I'm, that I typically juggle for the past few years. Ellie Goulding is great. I love her um, so much. I lost my mind seven or eight years ago when she tweeted that she was frantically cleaning her room while listening to RX Bandits. No way. Are like you a serious? A bunch of people showed it to me. Yeah. And I was just like, what? She has and an am- she, amazing taste. She was in like music. already popular, but she hadn't gotten to that superstar level that she was about to yet. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, she's honestly so cool. Like she's had her main band forever. And I think she completely switched up and got a new band now. But, um, a friend of mine, who you might even know. Do you know Izzy Fontaine? He's a guitar player. <laughs> of course I okay. know Isaac. So, <laughs> I've known him since he was a little kid. Yeah. Okay. So Isaac referred me to, to Ellie. Um, a friend of ours from Interscope reached out to him saying like, hey, I need an acoustic player to play with her who can also sing backups. And he couldn't do it. So he recommended me. And it was supposed to be just this one-off thing. And then Ellie and I got along super well. She was super cool. And then she's been calling me for all of like her acoustic US promo stuff. So anything that's not full band that's just kind of stripped down, I get called for all that here. So, but Izzy got me on that one. That's dope. That's really cool, man. Yeah. Um, so do you have any tours planned for the end of this year or for next year? Um, no tours. I haven't heard of anything. I'm also like, don't really want a tour especially with the baby. Yeah. Um, I have, totally. I have flyouts coming up and stuff. I'm out in Philly next month with BB and I have shows coming up like in August with Natasha and we're supposed to be doing some like festivals with TLC that festivals that got canceled before that are supposed to still happen again. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I think BB and Natasha are probably going to keep me the busiest and um, we're, supposed, we're supposed to be starting Bootsy's next record at some point as well. So I'm looking forward to that. That's a trip uh, working with him. 
I imagine so. Yeah. I mean, is he, has he slowed down on the base at all or is he still ripping or what? Um, he's not playing live. I know that he was having some physical issues that stopped him from being able to play live, but he's still in the studio and still produces a lot. And man, the way I met him and started working with him is unreal. Like I was on, I was on tour with BB Rexa. Um, I was filling in for her guitarist. Um, we split the tour in half. We were the opening act for the Jonas Brothers Happiness Begins tour in 2019. And we took a break from the tour to go play Rock and Rio. And he was on the flight with us. Like I saw him at the gate and I was just like, oh my God, it's Bootsy Collins. And I'm a huge James Brown, P-Funk, JBs, like yeah. that. that's what I grew up on, you know? And I feel like any guitar player with like rhythm and pocket has that to thank for the, where that foundation comes from, you know? And so I just went up to him and started talking to him. And I brought up, I had done a session that he played bass on. I played guitar on a track. We played on the same track, like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I, br- I just brought up to him like, hey, you probably don't remember, but I worked on this track with you a really long time ago at the studio. We didn't meet, but we got to play on the same song. And I just want to say like, I'm a huge fan of yours. And I just wanted to say hi to you. And he was just the nicest, warming, most warming, most welcome dude ever. So we chatted for a bit. You know, he asked me what I was doing. And we were both playing Rock and Rio the same night on different stages. So we chatted for a bit. And then we get on the plane. And then we get off the plane. And I just went up to him and asked him if I could take a picture with him. And we talked a little more. And he was just like, hey, man, do you have a way to record guitars like here in Brazil? And I was like, yeah, I have my mobile set up. I'm, you know, doing tracks remotely in my hotel room pretty much every day. And he's like, I did this song with Buckethead and he didn't do the lead parts on it. Do you think you can record them today? Like as soon as he gets to the hotel. And I was like, hell yeah, I can. And so I get to my hotel and sure enough, I have an email from him with this track. And this was right before Halloween. And so him and Buckethead did a version of Monster Mash. <laughs> and wow. so he's like, I just need you to do the solos. Give me like a solo here, a solo here. Give me one that sounds like this, one that sounds like this, one that sounds like this. And I was like losing my mind trying to like find the right solo that I think would like please him, you know? And I was like going on and on, like just take after take after take after take. I'm not happy with either one. And I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to do what I think fits the song and I'll just send it to him and see if that's the vibe he's looking for. So maybe like the first take that I did where I felt like, okay, this is this is what I think works. I sent it to him and he loved it. And he's like, that's going on the record. Send me the way files. So I just sent it to him and it was out like two weeks later. And then, <laughs> then he's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to be working on a record soon. I want you to write it with me. So I wrote like three tracks on the last record and played on a bunch of stuff. And he, I've been like his go-to guitar player since, which is crazy. I really think there's a lot to be said for that personal connection. Um, and how you hear somebody's parts or their music, whether it's kind of getting along with a guitarist like yourself that you meet at the airport or a band you're on tour with that you're like, when you don't know them and you hear their music, you're like, it's not for me. And then you get to know them and they're such great people. And then all of a sudden you're listening to their music with a different psychology and you're like, Oh, this is pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like that definitely happens for me. So um, the only reason I bring that up is maybe you know, although you were tripping because you're playing something for like this dude you looked up to for so long, maybe he vibed with you so hard to even ask you to do it that he already knew he had this innate sense that like, 
I'm going to vibe with this dude. As long as he doesn't suck, it's going to be cool. You know? <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't suck on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, rad, it's, man. it's, it's crazy. It's such a trip. And I feel like, you know, um, I, I, when I look back and like, think about these stories and how these things happen, like, um, like I'll tell you the, how the Beyonce thing happened. This is actually a really cool story. So the drummer who was in my first band ever, like this punk ska band that I was in, he ended up becoming an engineer. And um, funny enough, he was also the drummer in that band with Tom Sizemore who quit. Um, there was a studio that I was working at with a guy named Skip Sailor, And his engineer quit. And this drummer, Lester, um, he wanted to be an engineer. And he had his own like kind of home studio and was like, I really want to be an engineer. I want this to be my thing. I'm kind of over drums. And... I recommended him to that studio and I was like, look, you know, this guy will give you exactly what you need. He may not have the kind of experience running this kind of stuff, but I guarantee you that this dude will work his ass off and give you exactly what you need. So he got the gig and within two years he recorded Lemonade and won a Grammy. And yeah. And it just all just, you know, this Derek happened to want to do the record there. Someone recommended it to him. Lester was engineering and then they got along so well that they basically took him from the studio and he's been Beyonce's basically on-call 24-7 engineer since then. And, damn, you know, like when he won the Grammy, I like jokingly said to him like, yo man, like you owe me like a nice steak dinner or something because uh, I referred you to that studio. <laughs> like just jokingly, you know? And so the OTR2 tour finished, uh, Beyonce got asked to do a gala and it was all supposed to be pre-recorded. Um, the MD was like, I need someone who can give me some like classical acoustic vibes. Like I need like a classical acoustic player. And he's like, call Rod. And so he calls me and I'm in the middle of a session. I leave my session in the middle of it, run over to that studio. And he's like, Hey, so, um, I told him you're like a classical acoustic player. So (laughs) (laughs) fake it till you make it time. And and I'm just like, bro, are you serious? Like you're really going to make me look like an idiot on like my first in with these guys, man. And so, you know, everyone's super nice. Like her MD. I love that guy. He's one of my closest friends now. And, um, so we're going over songs and at one point I have to play Ave Maria and I'm like, I don't know Ave Maria. And they're like, how do you not know Ave Maria? Every classical guitarist yeah. should know Ave Maria. And so they like put me in another room and they had me spend like maybe 15 minutes on it. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to learn this in 15 minutes. So I go online and I look for a chord chart and then I'm like transpose it to the key that they're doing it in. They sent me like an audio recording of her version of it. And I start just kind of cutting the chart to make it match hers. And I'm literally mm-hmm. just like have chord numbers and like the little freight, the little fingerings on top and like the random middle lines. I'm like learning them. And I went in there and just ran it with her and everyone. And they're just like, cool, this sounds good. Let's take a break. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to get to record this. It's going to be great. I'm going to be able to put this on my resume. I'm stoked. And five minutes later, they're just like, hey, what are you doing for the next two weeks? We, we just, we decided we're going to do it live. And I was like, nothing. So I canceled like everything I had for the next two (laughs) weeks and rehearsed, played the show. And as soon as I get off stage, I go up to Derek and I'm like, hey man, just so you know, I'm not a classical guitarist. I completely bullshitted my way through all of that. And he's like, sounded great to me. We'll be calling you back. And since then, they've been calling me for all the studio stuff. And did you still play the classical guitar parts with a pick or did you actually do it finger picking style? Um, I finger picked most of it, but 
I also cool. have like the most unorthodox way of picking. I literally only use like my f- pointer finger and my thumb. So I'm like really fast picking like oh, everything with just wow. so like the thumb just does the low E and then my finger like will completely pick between every other string because I can't do it as smoothly and flowing if I add any other fingers in there. So it's literally literally this just going like this the whole time as I'm like I'm picking through patterns. <laughs> Bro. So you just do this like turbo lobster claw yes. type uh <laughs> imagine how gnarly you would be if you slowly and painfully integrated that middle finger even yeah. just like you would be murderous <laughs> on on those things. I mean if you can do all that with just those two fingers, just the pincer like I I don't even want to think about how <laughs> how hard you would shred with adding another finger into there. You know what I mean? One day. I mean, I'll be honest, man. Like, I don't practice because I just work, you know? And if I'm not working, yeah. I'm with my family. So I feel like that plays into, like, the huge imposter syndrome that I have, that we all have. But also, I feel like my ceilings, like, my technique ceilings never break. But my feel and, like, my tone and my finesse only gets better because of that. So it's like a give and take, you know? I totally relate to that. And I've had this discussion with many musicians and fellow uh, musicians and bands. Like when you're touring in the studio a lot, you kind of trust your body and your mind. Like if you felt like you needed to practice, there was something that you did 16 takes of and still didn't get, then we will. But other than that, like the necessity of practice at those times is it's pretty low. Um, I'm kind of in a different area where since pandemic and us taking a lot of time off of RX, I'm playing way less shows and I'm way less. So I feel my abilities kind of sinking. And so I've been refocusing personally myself on practicing my different instruments and kind of getting back into the joy of playing for the joy of playing, like literally the mentality of you know, remember how excited we would get when we first started playing where we were figuring out songs of our favorite bands mm-hmm. and how excited and triumphant we would feel even coming just 80% of the part, playing 80, 80% of the part correctly and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I've been having a good time myself kind of returning to that and just jamming along to songs and stuff like that. Right on. Dude, like I told you before, like I legit did that with all of your records, man. Like progress resignation like all of them i would sit and just go like dissect your parts as well as i could and i think i became a better listener because out of everything that i was listening to at that time to me you guys were the most out of the box and experimental especially when you you. especially when you got to around like and the battle begun i feel like that's when you guys really started like breaking through sort of what people expected your music to be and really just started just creating for the sake of creating, in my opinion. That's how I perceived it. And that's when I loved kind of taking all of that in. I feel like so much of my out-of-the-box playing that I bring, obviously a very watered-down version of that to pop music came from like you guys and like listening to your parts and like really, you know, sort of marinating and all of that. Well, that's a huge honor and... Uh, as always, that's to me one of the greatest compliments I can receive, especially from such an accomplished musician as yourself. So thank you. Thanks, um, man. We definitely tried to do that, but rather than thinking that we were like gatekeepers of that or something, we were just trying to carry on and resonate the same thing that other artists like Bad Brains or Fugazi and these people who 
clearly were taking conscious elements of music and then pulling them out of their normal state and creating something new with it. And it was with that ethos that we approached RX. And obviously, you know, we did it in a different way. But uh, yeah, just to have that connection and to have that recognized by fellow musicians is always just the best feeling. So thank you so much for that, man. Of course, man. Like, what did you, I'm, I'm curious, like, what did you, because we haven't really talked before and gotten to know each other. It's just been through random exactly. interactions yeah. online. What did you grow up listening to musically? Like, what influenced you? Well, playing, I started playing classical piano when I was four. So from about four till nine, it was so much classical music like literally me thinking like, oh, I like this Bach piece that I played. I like this, you know, easy, whatever, handle piece that I played. And then early, like my first, first musics obviously were like Michael Jackson. And then I get like my Bobby Brown and Paula Abdul tapes. Then I hear Paradise City by Guns N' Roses and it kind of goes from there. And then it's just like normal kid growing up in the 80s, early 90s shit. And then it all totally got flipped for me when i heard nirvana you know everything everything flipped then all of a sudden i'm like wanting to play guitar i had already been playing cello and stuff like that and then from there it just gets me into punk so then to actually answer your question the formative years it was like a lot of green day and bay area punk op ivy jawbreaker all this kind of stuff but during that time i'm also playing drums and bass and jazz band so I'm learning about all these jazz greats, you know, everyone from guitarists like Charlie Christian to, you know, Max Roach on drums, you know, Bill Watrous on trombone, uh, Coltrane, all this stuff, because I'm getting this like crazy jazz education as well. So um, after that, it was just punk and indie strictly. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it was me. And I've, I've discussed this before, but just to answer your question, it was essentially me figuring out what the hell do I do with all this classical training now that my passion is in this subculture of music that doesn't require any technical knowledge, but it does require good, compelled ideas. It requires authenticity and like real uh, conviction in what you're doing. Because in punk and indie and all this kind of stuff at first, you're not going to be you're not going to develop a new chord that's never been played even in most music. You're not going to create some kind of sonic structure that is totally different. What you can do is kind of impart it with your flavor and a big part of that flavor is somebody's conviction. Is how much they can own that idea, you know? And you hear it in pop music. You're hearing things that that sounds exactly like that. That sounds like this. That part of the hook was borrowed from this song. But all that can be forgotten when it's put together well and there's a lot of belief and conviction behind it. And then you can sell other people on it, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah. But to, to go back to the question you actually asked, yeah, it was a lot of that punk and indie, like early emo and indie rock, a lot of obscure bands. And then I started getting into more technical stuff like Don Caballero and, and a lot of like Lightning Bolt hella a lot of these more obscure like really shreddy technical bands that's crazy and, man. I, love, uh, I love how deep you go with all these genres it tell it i mean it shows in your playing so that's awesome it's inspiring oh thanks man yeah i i kind of attribute it to just like a general greed 
I have for everything. Like I'm a glutton and a hedonist. So if something tastes good, I want to eat everything in that culture's like cuisine. Just like if I like this genre or this style, I just、mm. go so deep into it. And then I'm like, I want to do that too. And so you know, we're trying to. And I think that's a lot of how、uh, Matt and I and and Seagak and the rest of the guys in RX how we kind of shaped our thing because obviously. Like you were talking about picking patterns and stuff, it's obviously like so metal influence, like、mm -hmm. this sort of speed picking and the rhythmic element. But then we're kind of pulling it out of its normal zone by not playing it super high gain. You're、yeah. getting more cleaner tones. It's like halfway in between. It's a nice breakup. Sometimes, yeah, it's real broken up. But you know, when you're hitting one or two strings or just one or two notes, it's it's much less broken up. It's kind of just like this. Actual harmonic distortion that's just sitting on、yeah. the, the the note itself, rather than being kind of just blanketed on top. You know, yeah.、So. The tone the tone you guys captured to me very much sounds like just cranked amps with not a whole lot of gain and just really letting your hands control just how dynamic everything sounds. You know, yeah. You, you get it, man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, Although I、exactly、I remember、right. I remember the cover you guys did of Holy Wars, and that was that was pretty freaking heavy. Well, that has to be. You know, <laughs> it's like. Yeah, that's like paying when you're doing like actual like Megadeth or Metallica <laughs> or like you know any any song. It's like I love the way you guys did that and the way you guys went to reggae and the bridge. Genius. That was cool. That was actually done before I had joined the band, like a year. Oh,、before. really? When、uh, what what year did yeah, you join yeah, the yeah. band? Or like which album I joined、cycle? the band in 2000. It was like I demoed Progress, some songs with Progress at the band, but I didn't officially join. Okay. They finished doing the record while I was touring with Mike Park and these other guys from the specials. I was doing like other gigs and stuff. I remember Mike Park.、Uh, yeah, so I was playing with the Chinkies. We were doing tours in like Europe and Japan.、That's、and so stuff, funny. And yeah, I mean, I grew up on that whole Asian Man Records ska parade wave. Like that was my thing. You know, I love the Bruce Lee band, Skank and Pickle. Like I loved all、yeah. of that, man. I grew up on all of that. Yeah, that's rad.、Uh, I my next episode coming out is with Brian Diaz. And he's a tech, and he played in that band Edna's Goldfish, and he was on my first tour ever when I was playing with Slow Gherkin.、Um, wait, you were in Slow Gherkin? I, I mean, I I've talked about this on multiple podcasts. <laughs> I wasn't like an official official member.、Mm -hmm. I was never on an album, but I played three different instruments、um, over like two or three years in Slow Gherkin. That's awesome. So like, there were sections of tours where I played drums. There were shows where I played bass. And there was like a tour where I played keyboard. That's with awesome. The band,、so. I remember getting an old demo tape of "I Only Smoke When I'm Drunk," and I was obsessed with that song. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, they were another band who really early on had so many influences that their music was really diverse. Yeah. In, like, for example, "I Only Smoke When I'm Drunk." It kind of starts out with this fast snare roll,、mm -hmm. and then it goes into this surfy,、oh, very riff, surfy,、right? yeah, surf rock, yeah, yeah. But in the bridge of that song, complete Fugazi breakdown. Yeah, I mean one of the sickest slow Gherkin breakdowns ever. <laughs> I loved playing that part. That、know? is so awesome. So I didn't know.、Yeah. So did you play on Progress at all? You just did the demo stuff for that. I just did the demo stuff. For okay.、That. I wasn't actually on the record because that was when they had first signed. And、okay. then my first song writing with the band was immediately after that record came out. Um. Actually, sorry. Right before the record was due to be released, but after it had been recorded, I went down 
and Matt Siak and I wrote a song called Mastering the List together. It's a great song. Where we got into the studio in Venice and it was like the beginning of how we wrote music for RX, where it was just like, all right, what do we got? And so I was like, oh, I have these parts. I came, I showed the, the chorus riff, uh, you know, where it's basically kind of jumping in loose arpeggiations of like the chords throughout the chorus. And then we put together the intro part with the moving power chords, the dennit, dennit, dennit. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was the first thing that we actually wrote and recorded together. And that was for that drive through comp, Welcome to the Family. That's awesome. And we wrote and recorded the whole song in one day. It's amazing, actually. man. Seagag's drums Which on that song were so good. He's such a phenomenal drummer. He is, man. That level of feel and uh, bypassing any sort of cerebral process and just feeling it. I've met very few musicians that have been able to create such a direct path from that sort of subconscious gut flow state place to like their physical limbs to manifest it. Yeah. You know? I feel like him um, and Darren King are like two of the only drummers that, do you know Darren King from UMath? Mm. Like, I feel like Seagak and him are like those two drummers that to me are so incredible and out of the box and they're, they're similar, but very different, but there aren't many drummers in bands who have sort of their own strong personality in a band and their own presence in a band like they do. Like it's phenomenal. I love it. Yeah, I feel so lucky to have gotten to play with a drummer like him because his signature sound and feel is so important. And it wasn't until later on, till we kind of stepped away from the band more, did I really get to... I mean, we always appreciated it, but I kind of appreciated it on a new level because it's just like even even the pocket, like the groove in which Seagak is able to stay even with fast parts, I'm just like, oh man... Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I feel so lucky. I mean, you know, great drummers, they're around, but they're not the easiest to find, Mm -hmm. especially the ones that you really click with, you know? Yeah. So uh, I hear you for sure. To have that, to have that is, is really badass. See, that's the one thing that I, you know, it's so funny. Like I work with like, you know, Matt Rubano a lot and a lot of my, I become friends with a lot of people who are in bands that like I idolized growing up. And I always feel like, God, I wish I would have had like a band, you know, that was like, did this thing and we made this mark and had this impact. And not to say that I'm ungrateful for what I do. Like I get to work on records that are super impactful, but like, I, I feel like there's something really special and admirable about like, you know, what you and like Rubano have done where you like were genuinely a core part of something that touched so many people. Like I can honestly say like, I wouldn't, be the musician I am, I wouldn't have gone through like my late teens and early 20s if it wasn't for the records that you guys put out. I'd be a completely different person. Like that's how much your music impacted me and influenced me, not just as a musician, but as a human being, you know, like how much music really helps people get through like really turbulent times and stuff like that. And your guys' records did that for me, you know? So like, I'm so grateful that that existed and did what it did for me at at that point in time, you know? Man, that just, every time it blows my mind because I still have so much of that younger self in me that was just dreaming about making my life um, all around music and stuff. And to think that I, I, well, I never thought, and I still get tripped out, 
that I was part of something that did that for anyone. And to hear it from, like I've said before, accomplished musicians like yourself sincerely is, it blows my mind still because uh, as far as what you were saying, it's never too late, man. There's no peaking <laughs> time where you're past your expiration date in our game of music. You for know? sure. Yeah, Maybe if you're trying to like look a certain way and market yourself, but like, I think that um, with the amount of music you play and the kind of current that you're in, it could happen for you at any time. As soon as like whatever in your life needs to open up where that is more of an option for you and stuff, like, you know, for someone like you, you said you're what, like 36, 37 now? Yeah. Yeah, so like, I mean, you got so much playing time, man. <laughs> All right, well, one of these days when we have some downtime, I'm going to hit you up to work on a track with me and Rubano. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Anytime, man. It's going to be fun. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we just need to find a drummer. Oh, that's easy. I know so many great drummers who would love to like work on some cool stuff. That's the other thing. That's is, like rad. With session players, you know, you meet all these people and like that's what they do. That's like their work for them. It's like you don't find many people who have that same passion for like wanting to just create great music for the sake of creating music. Everyone's in this like hustle and grind mode, you know. Totally. And so totally. I, I love that I'm able to get because like my you know obviously that's my priority i have a family to feed and i'm like the sole provider for my family and i'm grateful to be able to do so but there's always that part of me that's itching to just create something fun and amazing and you know do something that's more fulfilling than it is lucrative you know yeah and i agree with you completely i've also found that sometimes when we focus on those things that may not seemingly pay the immediate dividends that we need to live they actually turn out to have a, a really immense value all of their own in opportunities and relationships it creates and stuff too, you know? Um, but one must not think of that. And like you were talking about, we just got to make stuff to make stuff for the sake of making stuff because yeah. not to sound corny or nothing, but like that is the essence of art and being creative. You that's, know what that's I mean? That's why like, we all started playing music, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I'm, I feel so lucky that we got RX to the point where we had a decent amount of people buying our tickets and coming to see us and paying attention, but we were doing what we were doing to five people in Indiana and we would have kept doing that for days. You know what I mean? No matter what, just because we were all lucky enough to find each other and create something together that we thought was good enough where we were stoked on it no matter what. And it wasn't us having to have some mental strength of being like, well, we need to perform the same in front of 10 people as we do in front of a thousand people. It was that we were lucky enough that we found each other to make music. We were like, dude, it feels so good that we can rock out the same in front of 10 people or a thousand people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember the first time I saw you guys live was at the palace. Do you remember the palace? <laughs> oh yeah. I remember that show. It's a great um, show. My friend a high school friend of mine was in a band opening up for you guys called The Silence. And mm. I came to that show. And that was the first time I'd seen you guys. And I believe it was still the Progress album cycle because it was mostly songs from that and Halfway Between Here and There. And it's just it was, yes. phenomenal. So, so phenomenal. That was the first time. That like, was a fun show. I'd been obsessed with you guys for a while at that point. But it was that was my first time actually seeing you guys. And it was, you know, amazing. It just made me want to go home and practice. Thanks. Yeah. For us at the time is like, we had just come off of watching at the drive-in international noise conspiracy, you know, um, 
Mars Volta had just put out the Tremulant EP, meaning they had just formed. Yeah. They hadn't even re- recorded Deloused yet. Yeah. And that stuff got into us so bad that we were like, whoa, how can we mix all this stuff together? So that's cool that you remember that Palace show only because that was one of the shows that I remember as being one of those defining moments where we're like, here's our new stage setup. Here's our new performance style. Here's our new aesthetic, like everything like that. So that's really cool that you were there, man. I remember one of the funniest things, like minor detail that I remember the most was uh, your bass player. Um, <laughs> he just had like a really short coiled cable and I was like, he can't get too far from his bass amp. But he was like rocking out, just super leashed to his bass amp. <laughs> yeah. At that time, that was Johnny Sagakis. That was Sagak's younger brother playing oh, really? bass with us. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. It was before Joy had Joe had joined the band. So okay. Yeah. Also, I love that you mentioned international noise conspiracy. Like, I feel like they were so much under the shadow of the Refused that they didn't get the attention they deserved. Because that that first record they put out was so unbelievably good. Like, I loved it. It was. Um, I feel like you're right overall, but I feel like at that time in like 2001 or something, because Shape of Punk to Come had just come out two years earlier and they just broke up, even though that record had so much hype, at that time, International Noise Conspiracy had that video for Smash It Up on MTV. Mm -hmm. And like commercially that got way more successful and you could see that they thought like, oh, this is the thing, you know? Because mm-hmm. then shortly after they did this tour with the Hives opening up for them at yeah. the Glass House, we went and saw that show. And like, uh, yeah, at, at the time, I, we thought that that, oh, this band is going to be huge, you know? Yeah, to me, Turns they were out. like, they were like punk rock Elvis Costello. Like I loved it so much. They had such a cool vibe to them. Yeah, they also borrowed heavily from this band called uh, The Makeup and Nation of Ulysses, which are like earlier Discord bands that I love a lot. Where if you check out those bands, the sound, the stage vibe, and the aesthetic is very similar. Cool, I'll have um, to check it out. Not to discredit International Noise Conspiracy, but I mean, just giving love to their sort of like predecessors yeah. because I love those bands too, you know? I'll definitely check them out. Yeah, you definitely should, man. Um, So being somebody who's so busy with music, playing guitar, what are some of your interests that are counterbalanced to that? Like you've done two weeks straight of gigging. You've done seven studio sessions. You've done a jam session, blah, blah, blah. You have a couple days off with the family. Besides just chilling, is there any sort of stuff that you like to do you get into that has nothing to do with music? Honestly, no. Like I just, I I never, ever get sick of playing music. Like it's like, you know, obviously my family's a priority. If I have time off, I'm like a big, like, let's get out of here. Let's go get in nature. Let's go to the beach. Let's go to the park. Like we have passes to like these beautiful gardens out here and like the aquariums and stuff. So I'm big on that. Um, But I'm the kind of person that if like I go two days without playing music or working, I start to kind of lose my mind. And it's not even like... Uh, before it used to be like this, oh my God, how am I going to provide for my family? I, I need to make money. And like, you know, luckily work's been so sustainable and consistent that it's not about that. To me, it's now that it's like, I feel, um, and maybe it's a bad thing, but I feel like I need to just constantly be making music and playing. That's cool. I dig that. So you've spent one whole day with the family out at the gardens, out at the beach chilling. 
you're a uh, second day at home, maybe the baby's asleep, you don't have any pressing responsibilities at the moment. Is it just you kind of just sitting down, picking up your guitar and just playing some stuff? Um, yeah, it'll be me either kind of like seeing if I can dial in new tones and sounds I'll set up there or maybe prepping ahead of time for something coming up the next couple of days or just, you know, if I feel inspired writing and creating something on my own that I'll never finish. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people would consider that practicing still, though. See, like maybe I have a weird idea of what practicing is. To me, practicing is like, you know, doing crazy runs and arpeggios and like trying to play faster than yeah. I can and like really develop. See, like, okay, so here's the thing. I feel like Instagram and so much social media is really making old school guitarists feel sort of inept. You know, like I see the way these, <laughs> I see the way these kids play and I'm just like, I probably could never do that in my life. But right. at the same time, it's like, I wouldn't want to do that for any other reason than to satisfy my own ego because there's no there's no place for that in my life. You know, like I I, right. I come and work on these records and it's like the the two main complaints that I get in the studio all the time is that the tone sounds too pretty, like it sounds too good, or that I'm playing it too clean and that it's too precise. <laughs> And, you know, when I started out as a session guitarist, that's what was wanted, you know, like 15 years ago, we were still in totally. the era of the guitars need to be perfect, the guitars need to be polished, the doubles need to be so precise, there needs to be almost like a hybrid human robotic feel to them. It needs to feel human, but sound perfect. And now I think because where music's at now, it's like, it's the generation of the home producer and the one, the guy who does everything yeah. on his own. You know, you got a producer who kind of plays guitar, so he plays on the records and people have become very accustomed to that sound. Literally sounds like a guitar going straight into an interface with some crappy plugin and kind of, yeah. kind of not played well, but there's a vibe to it and it's become very accepted in music. So, you know, I'll do some of these big sessions and... I remember just like, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, I was in a session and they're like, yeah, that sounds too good. Let's just unplug your amp and go straight into the board. And like inside, I'm like dying, you know, but I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I'm like, it's fine. If that's what you want, that's what you want. And I was, you know, working on a session with Derek and he, I was playing like this line that he liked and he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, like you're playing it fine. And but like the one line that he is, he's like, but it's not getting rid of my anxiety. And that's his way of saying that it doesn't feel right, you know? Yeah. And so he literally put that section of the song on a loop and had me play it like 30, 40 times in a row, nonstop. And so, you know, like I'm an older dude. I probably haven't had the best form with playing guitar. So I get tendonitis and I get cramps if I'm playing too much. So like 25 times in, my hands start cramping up. It starts to get kind of clammy. It starts to sound like crap. And then when finally that right amount of clam and crap comes in a take. He's like, that's the one. And that's the one that went on the record. But it took me playing it to the point of exhaustion to get him the performance that he wanted. So it's funny to like really have to like accept the fact that I, and I, and I don't mean to sound egotistical, but I have to dumb down my playing the majority of the time now to work on these records. No, yeah, I completely relate to that. And although if you took that statement out of context, it could sound egotistical. Actually, when you've listened to it in context, I very much relate to it. 
it, it's not we're not saying that we're too good. We're saying that I guess now the the trend in music is going towards people with much less musical knowledge kind of being the tastemakers. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for a lot of us that grew up in a world where this music industry and songwriting was dominated by kind of apex musically able people. And now the, in the age of the home producer where people are making literally top 10 hits on Fruity Loops on their iPhones, which is not just not rare, but actually quite common. Um, it's a trip for us because, yeah, it's hard for us to dumb down our playing. It's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around the fact that people who don't necessarily know how to play the instrument that we're playing could have a, uh, I guess, valuable opinion on what's going to sound good on something. That took me a long time to kind of like get into my head because yeah. for some reason I had this hubris about in my younger years, I had this hubris about my musical knowledge being like, you don't even know how to play like a C major scale. How can you say <laughs> what sounds good? And I realized that that's like foolish and random, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I think that's the rub, you know, that yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And I, it doesn't mean they're wrong or we're wrong or yeah. anybody's right. It just is what it is. Honestly, I kind of, I kind of enjoy it. You know, like, I feel like there's a part of your ego that's like any anyone's ego gets a tiny bit bruised if they're like no what you think is perfect for this isn't you know but i also love the idea of being challenged like and what's more challenging than someone saying hey don't play like yourself or don't follow your instincts you know and i i think of like what it would be like if it was the opposite if i went to every session and everyone loved my first idea and my first take that would get really boring after a while Totally. So I'm grateful for it. I feel like I need things like that. I don't ever want to be this guitarist that isn't able to follow the current sound that's needed to follow this. Because it's not like, you know, like I'm a session guitarist. I am providing a service. I'm providing what people need on music that's constantly evolving and changing, you know. So I have to be this chameleon. So I do enjoy the challenge. Um and I enjoy the fact that in some way I do enjoy the fact that I have to sort of unlearn my behavior and my patterns and my approach to music. And it's only going to happen more and more as time goes by, you know? Well said. I relate to that sentiment completely. Um, I, I too kind of landed on that spot where I'm like, well, at the same time, this is kind of cool. Somebody who has no association with what I'm thinking or feeling is just objectively looking at my music and then subjectively choosing, you know, and like, or how I play things and then subjectively choosing. So it's cool. I I dig it totally now, you know, but, um, yeah, when I was younger, I had a hard time with it. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) what is this shit, man? So I'm curious if, if this is a, if this is a weird question or not, but how, what does evolution look like collectively for you in a band like RX? Like how, how is it like wanting to sort of evolve and push and grow as a band, but also make it in a way where everyone's sort of on the same page? Um, that's a very cool question. Um, I think it's multi-layered, like anything that's kind of like a bigger process 
And then you have an added element of being multiple consciousnesses. So not just one person's idea, it's like multiple people's idea. It's kind of tricky at first because we're the type of band where we really pushed the idea of us evolving and constantly trying to push our own boundaries. We've kind of really imposed that upon anybody who listened to our band or imposed it. So it's just like expected always, right? And then it's hard not to become a slave to or an addict to whatever praise you receive back, right? If that makes sense. Absolutely. So then our fans say back to us, I love your music. You're always progressing and pushing it. You're always not staying the same. You're kind of always wanting to be experimental. It's hard not to let that get into your head and be like, oh yeah, yeah, we are. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like, so um, once you kind of get past that, it's been a very delicate balance of what have we done? What do we like? What do we want to do that we haven't done yet? Where do we see this going? And then you kind of don't let that take center stage, but you allow it to kind of, that concept to chill in a smaller space in your mind. And around that you wrap, well, let's just do what feels good to us. So you have this core of this really like, I don't know, analytical view of what you do and what you sound like, but you kind of want to muffle it, muffle that idea and dampen it with a big thick layer of, we're just going to play what feels good to us still. Yeah. And even if it sounds the same and it doesn't progress how other people think it should or we should, we kind of just have to... I think it's just better and more authentic to stick mostly with playing what feels good to us. And then rather than trying to see where you're going to go with it, seeing where it takes you. I, I don't know if that sounds corny or not. That makes Maybe it does, sense. but that's just kind of, yeah. yeah, it's just kind of like the way we really do it. So uh, we've written about five new RX songs over the past few months. And uh, I very much feel like that has been a big part of the process really is that kind of i guess laying it out that way yeah you know? well i'm excited to hear what comes next man gemini was mind-blowing like oh thanks amazing man. i remember my son when it first I first came out i was listening to that record every single day and like i think what year did it come out 2014 2014 so he was eight and <laughs> he like immediately like had like four or five of his favorite songs on that record and he would always just i think his absolute favorite one was it's only another parsec like he'd always sing that song and i don't think he even knew the words so he would just like sing these like melodic babbling syllables <laughs> but yeah. i like i mean i i loved uh, to me that's a really good gauge on how music is because children don't analyze anything they either like oh this is really good or it's not so totally like, I love that he took to it and loved it and still listens to those records all the time now. That's one of the, also one of the best compliments is when you see kids like grooving or dancing or enjoying your music for that same reason you said, because there's no thought about it. It's literally the feeling, yeah. that response, you know? And, uh, and, that's, and I love that. 
Yeah, and it's like it's 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 so authentic because there's certain songs that a kid will hear, but they'll they have no problem telling you I don't like the song, you know. So it's not like they just like everything <laughs> they hear, you know. There's certain songs that I've worked on that I showed my son. He's like, oh yeah, I don't really like that, and so he's just very honest and very blunt. So I loved that I was able to show him, you know, music that meant something to me, and you know, music currently being made by bands that I loved, and him just being like this is really good. I was like, I know it's really good. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's a huge honor. I, I, uh, I'm truly flattered. Uh, I would like to ask you the same thing though, in a session with an artist you've recorded parts for before working on something new, not trying to kind of get stuck into something. How does that evolution on a smaller scale in like a more focused application play out for you? Um, I think for what I do, uh, evolution really lies in the sonics of everything. So many records that I work on um, don't really want traditional sounding guitar. So it's a matter of how can I approach things that sound very different, but, you know, complement the song and I'm able to sort of find my space in them. So like, you know, a lot of the, like the Beyonce recordings that I've done, when I show them to people, I kind of have to be like, so you hear that really cool part right there? That's me. Like that's guitar. Like I have to kind of point it out that that's guitar. Yeah. You know? So I think to me, um, which is why a lot of my spare time, I kind of spend dialing in and finding these cool trippy sounds. That's how I've made myself um, sort of, still have some sort of relevance in the music that I work on and also still kind of be in demand. Cause it's like, sure, you can probably find a sound similar to that on a keyboard or something, but it's the fact that I brought it and it took zero work for you. I'm just doing every, nothing's post. Um, and I'm, it's sort of just a different perspective that I bring guitar wise. So um, I think to me, evolution is definitely lies in that I'm always looking for like, all right, what's going to give me these cool new sounds? I'm always checking out new gear, new pedals, like things that are trippy, things that are like different sounding. Also finding different ways to record, different like methods to record because nobody wants to mic amps anymore. So I use like the Universal Audio Oxbox. I have um, my favorite amp is a Bogner amp. I have my own signature one through them. And so I just keep finding ways of being super compact, super efficient and finding sort of new refreshing sounds. Like one of my biggest pleasures is like walking into a studio like playing a part or coming up with this and like literally making someone like rubberneck and turn me like what was that all right let's put that on there so like that to me is my goal in every session to give someone something they've never heard before that's just like that fits the song that's this so i sort of have this kind of like you know like you were saying you have like this like you're greedy i'm sort of greedy with these sounds of wanting i keep wanting to like find something cool that people is like, I've never heard that before. Like, that's great. Let's put that on here. So I guess that's where I feel myself growing as a session player and that, and also really understanding people. Like so much of my job is sort of deciphering because people will say they want something and what they're asking for isn't exactly that, but I have to know what they mean when they say this. So like they say like, Oh, give me something with like fuzz. And I'm like, you don't want fuzz, but I'm going to give you something that I think you're interpreting as that. And then making it seem in a way like, okay, this is what you didn't realize you were asking for, but I'm not going to tell you, Hey, I know better than you. I'm just going to be like, cool, I'll give you that. Right. So it's a lot of like, you know, kind of be like, 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 like you're like 
almost like a child, like how you are with a kid. Like, you know, like, oh, I want this. And like, no, no, I think you want this. And then, but I'm going to make it seem like this is what you asked for and you're going to be happy with it. So, and that's not to sound condescending against the people I work with. Producers aren't musicians. Artists aren't musicians. They're artists. So it's a lot of just like mental translation and being, and, and being intuitive and being like, I think this is what works. I think that's what works. And really being able to sort of just bridge the connection between what they're asking for and what actually works for the song, you know? Yeah, that's legit. And it's very, I think that's a good approach to dealing with people in general, a lot of the times, you know? Yeah. Uh, Understanding at the core of that is essentially understanding what they're trying to communicate, regardless of whatever tools they have or don't have to communicate it. Yeah. Um, I think that's very intuitive and very cool. I think it's a really smart way to collaborate in general, whether it's with artists or producers or people in your own band, is to kind of just like understand uh, what their motivations are, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm endlessly fascinated with. That is the whole like motivation of this podcast which is exactly that, which is me not intuitively guessing and just thinking, but actually like bare bones, like asking and finding out <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. And like, and like talking about it. So yeah, I mean, at the that's end, that's cool of, to hear, man. At the end of the day, it's not just providing a service, but providing an environment that's pleasant, you know, like, yeah. And that's, what's going to keep you working. So if you're, you know, if you're wanting to be a session player, it's not just, oh, play really well and give people what they want. It's make people feel good. Make people want to be in a room with you all day. Make people think to call you as soon as they need a guitar player. Like, oh, he's great. He's always delivers and he's a pleasure to work with, you know? Exactly. It's what I tell people too, when they ask about that, which is like, well, the abilities are really the bare minimum. Yeah. You can't even be there if you don't have the ability. What the thing is, is how you are as a person, the vibe you create, how easy you are to work with, your punctuality, your flexibility, your openness to direction, like, you know, willing to do all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you, everyone heard it first from successful studio session guitar player himself like that's that's something that you really got to focus on if your interest is getting into this sort of stuff you know yeah um i need to go back to something did you say you have your own signature bogner amp (laughs) i do yeah um so i've been using bogner for a really long time i absolutely love their amps and uh reinhold bogner is a really good friend of mine and um a a while back they released a model called the goldfinger 54 phi and i did the demos for it and I really liked it. And he's like, what do you think of this amp? And he's like, be honest with me. I'm like, I like it. I think I would want it to be a little more powerful. I think I'd want it to be a little more flexible with my pedals. I'd like to spend less time dialing in like how it works well with my pedals. And I was just being very honest because he wanted open feedback. And so I kind of like told him, like, I would absolutely use this amp if I were able to kind of just do this with it and do that with it. And it did this for me. And so he's like, okay, let's just make you one. And I was like, Okay, so we spent like three months taking that model and I'd be in, you know, the shop with him and I'd have my pedals. I'm like, I want it. I want my pedals here and I want the EQ on the amp here and I want it to sound like this. So he just started ripping stuff out, soldering things, changing signal paths, changing out transformers, trying different tubes. And then we eventually got to where like, I was like, this is perfect. And bro, 
That's so sick. Is it a combo or a head that you have? I have it as both. So that's the great thing about their heads is their heads can are interchangeable. Yeah. So I have the combo shell for it. And I also have the amp head. I usually just keep it in the amp head because it's so small and it just sounds incredible. Like every session I'm doing, I'm using that. Is it one channel amp? Yep. And how many watts is it? I believe it's 66, but it's like interchangeable. You can cut the tubes in right. half and you have so many different wattage options. But um, Is it in a black wrap or what's the color of yours? Yeah, it's like a black Tolex with like gold, um, kind of like a gold face plate on it. Okay. Does it have the classic like Bog light up Bogner uh, logo in the face plate and stuff? It doesn't. It just has like kind of like the plastic one in front. Okay, gotcha. And then uh, what are the controls on it? Is it like a pre and a master with three EQ knobs or what's so the render? It has like the two volume controls. There's a loudness and a gain, which I'm assuming is like oh, a that's gain right. and master. Yeah. And just three band EQ. There's a presence on it. There's an effects loop that I don't use. There's like a digital reverb can that I don't use. And it has these like EQ shifters where it has like a low and a high sort of EQ shifts. So I always keep the low on because I just love having massive low end. And it's just very, it's pretty simple. There's a couple like boosts on it and like gain boosts and stuff, just like little switches that I never use. I like having just the perfect clean platform that lets my amps, my, my sorry, my pedals completely shine and just do all the work. Are the EQ shifts on pots that pull out? Yeah, it's like a little switch that just goes up and down. Oh, okay. Switch that goes up and down. That's cool. And in the cabinet or in the combo housing, what speakers are in there? Uh, the combo housing that I do have for it, it is a Celestian Creamback. Those are my favorite speakers. Okay, cool. But I don't even use those anymore. Like literally like live with BB and in the studio and anything I'm doing, it's just that universal audio aux box. And that's like a sort of like a cab sim. And you said the circuitry for your Bogner is based on which amp? Uh, the Goldfinger 54 Phi. That's oh, one of the models they put Goldfinger 54 Phi. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm not really familiar. Um, I've played a bunch of Ubershaw and Shiva like back in the day. Yeah. Obviously they sound great, but um, sounds like your signature model would be less gain driven or yeah. less gain oriented, right? Yeah. It's just a perfect clean platform. And just like whatever pedals you have, it just kind of is very transparent and takes pedals really well. I love it. I love it. My thing is I'm a huge, huge uh, fan of matchless amps. Oh, nice. I love matchless for that exact reason. Obviously, nobody loves the price, but... <laughs> They're not I cheap. Mean, no, <laughs> but, but when, you get, when you get those good ones, man, I don't know. There's something about that tone and the presence and the harmonic distortion that you can put on top. That's just, I just love it a lot. Yeah. Dude, one of, these days, one, one of these days we'll have to do like a studio hang and like nerd out on each other's gear. Yes. Actually, what I would like to do is what I plan on doing is filming a web series for YouTube of the podcast where I jam with certain guests and okay. we go through this sort of stuff. So Dude, I would love to do one of those with you. That would be awesome, man. That'd be so cool. Hell yeah. Um, so, what else do you got going on this week as far as work goes? Today's Wednesday. Do you have any stuff coming up? Today's Wednesday. I have a session tonight um, with an actress named Emily Osmond. She has a project called Bluebird. And uh, my good buddy Nick Hughes, he's the drummer for Bush. He's producing her stuff. So he just hit me up uh, a bit ago to do a few tracks for her. So I'll be doing that remotely 
And actually, um, I don't know if you've, have you ever heard of Loopback? No. So Loopback is like this app that I got on my laptop. It's freaking amazing. So it's like a virtual routing system. And so what oh. I'm able to do for like remote sessions when I'm not in person with people is I route everything. So on Zoom, um, you're able to hear my DAW. You're able, I'm able to track on something and you hear, the, you can hear the metronome, you can hear everything. And as long as we both have decent internet, it sounds great and it's streamlined with the video. So you're actually watching me track along to a song, listening to it really in like really decent audio. And it's really no different than you just being in a room watching me track because there's no latency between the audio and video. That's so cool. Are you speaking to me on that mic through loopback right now? Yeah. Okay. I was wondering how it sounds so decent. I'm like, <laughs> I also have it going through like a, a Neve mic pre plugin. So it sounds pretty good. But like right now I could plug my guitar into my interface with everything and it'll be like incredibly good quality. You'd be able to just hear anything I'm playing. I can play something like on a, you know, I can play Spotify. I can play anything on a DAW and you'll hear everything I'm hearing through my Apollo. Do you, oh, you use an Apollo? Yeah. So you're using like a UA 1073 or something like that? Yeah, it's like a 1073 plugin. So it's not actual hardware. Oh, yeah. That plugin's great. Yeah. I, I have it on my console too. I use it yeah. for everything. That's what I do. Like I track my guitars through it, I track acoustic through it. Sounds great. I mean, I think that the Neves 1073 Pre might be the most widely loved and widely used mic pre of all time. Yeah. I'm not the biggest like tech person with stuff like that, but they just sound great. I love it. They sound great. And there's a reason that the most accomplished engineers and musicians just like us all love them. Yeah. I mean, they sound good. Yeah. I'm not super techy with like any engineering stuff or anything. I just kind of know what sounds good. And then when I find my one thing that sounds good, I'm like, yeah, that's all I'm going to use. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm not somebody that collects tons of guitars and tons of this and stuff like that. Like I like what feels good and sounds good. I love that every time I've seen you play, you use that natural wood, less Paul body. Yeah. It's the 1978, the Paul. Yeah. (laughs) What brand is it? Is it a Gibson? Yeah, it's a Gibson. Okay. Um, It's just a rare, like mid-level model when they came out in the late seventies. Cause I almost looks like the pickup switch is at the bottom near the volume and tone knobs which is awesome for rocking out and playing on stage because you don't have to tape your pickup switch like a lot of people did when it was up there Mm -hmm. you know yeah so it almost looked like there wasn't a logo on the headstock though it almost looks like a what logo like there wasn't a logo on the headstocks i wasn't sure if it was a gibson or not oh yeah the logo you can see here it's uh it's very faded Okay, that's why, yeah. I've always noticed that it never yeah. really, I couldn't really see it too much in your pictures and stuff. Yeah, I mean, now this guitar is two years older than I am, or it always was, but you know. <laughs> yeah, here, um, I'll, I'll show you this. I'll show you this Nova I have real quick. Oh, yeah, let's see that. This thing is, this thing's a beast. Oh, that thing is beautiful, man. It's got like, it's a, this one's made out of pine and it's like a semi hollow and the headstocks are like super cool looking on them as well. And this thing's That's beautiful. amazing. It's one of the e- easiest to play guitars like I've ever played in my life. It's phenomenal. It's like almost cheating. Do you play, do you play tens or I do, yeah. different, mu- I use tens. mismatch gauges or what, what do you have on your low E string? I'm what, what size 10 is it? 10 to 40, what is it? 10 to 46, I think is what that gauge is. Yeah. So just oh, standard, okay, cool. standard gauge of that. I see. 
That's cool, man. And do you, your um, G string? Do you play wound or flat um, or plain? Uh, plain. I have like um, I have to have like I have tendonitis in my hands, so I need to have like no fight. I want to be easy to bend, or else it just like wrecks my hands. Yeah, I feel you. I play plain G string too. Yeah, right on. Uh, but I play. We play heavier gauges on the bottom, like fifty-two, forty-two, thirty. Yeah, I'm sure that sounds because. massive. Yeah, you know, bigger string, more sound, that whole thing. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think if I had a different guitar for more session stuff and less intensive, like digging in, I would definitely have smaller gauges. Right. <laughs> I, I do on my Jazz Master, actually. Right I don't, I'm not playing 52s on that and stuff like that. So. <laughs> right yeah. on, man. Well, unfortunately, I do got to wrap up. I got to be somewhere at noon. But man, this has been so awesome, Steve. Like, thank you so much for having me, man. All good, man. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. This has been a great musical conversation and it's been awesome to get to chat with you. So thanks again, man. Likewise, dude. And I'm looking forward to doing the, the studio hang. Hell yeah. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. <laughs>